Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded, recently hitting 6 million listens. Support us by buying a copy of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a small donation. In return, we'll give you the chance to nominate a guest and even win lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. Find out more at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin! Italian Wine Podcast is delighted to present the series of highlights from the 2022 Wine to Wine Business Forum, focusing on wine communication and bringing together the most influential speakers in the sectors to discuss the hottest topics facing the wine industry today. Don't forget to tune in every Thursday at 2pm Central European Time or visit winetowine.net for more information. I just want to say that the last time I stood up on a stage at Wine to Wine, I was talking about natural wine and... Uh, nobody came, <laughs> which wasn't really much of a surprise. And when Felicity said serial killers, everybody wants to hear listen about serial killers. I'm like, no. And here we go. Okay, so uh, I'm Felicity Carter. I'm a wine journalist, and it's my great pleasure today to introduce um, somebody that many of you know, Alice Firing. She is a wine writer of great stature. She's been called the queen of natural wine, uh, the person who uh, pushed natural wine into the consciousness of the wine world, whether they wanted it or not. Um, she's written six books, uh, The Battle for Wine and Love, which uh, where she took on Robert Parker. She's written a book called Naked Wine. She's written about wines of Georgia. She wrote a book called Wine Dirt. Um, she wrote Natural Wine for the People, and her latest is a memoir, um, To Fall in Love, Drink This. So, it's 30 into... Yes, hold it up. Hold on. We don't have any visuals, and obviously. All, if, if, you, if you're on your smartphone, make sure you're ordering it off, off Amazon. Right, so this is 30 interlocked essays, but it's neither a conventional narrative memoir, but it's not a wine book either. Why did you choose to write the, what you did? Uh, I can never tell this the short way. Um, I, at the beginning of the pandemic at lockdown, and forgive anybody, like, sorry for repeating myself if somebody just listened to me before, but the sound is much better here. I, like everybody else, thought that wine shops would be closed in the United States, and I didn't want to be stuck without wine. So I went out and bought a shitload of wine. Um, carted it up my five-floor walk-up. I thought that my boyfriend and I would be just well fortified. But um, Peter, on a good day, is a hypochondriac. So during the initial stages, it was really bad. And he decided not to stay in his own abode. Even before I got COVID, which finally happened last May, everything that I tasted just didn't taste good. And I found myself, oddly enough, craving salty wines. So I was really wanted sherry. I wanted wines with floor and everything super, super, super savory. And wrote a story about this for New York Magazine. And my agent wrote me a note, said, I want a book of essays. And I had been wanting to segue out of writing about wine for a long time. And I thought, great, but they're really hard to sell. And she just shut up and write it. Of course, she said, but you have to write about wine. <laughs> So you have to. So I constructed 15 essays. They all have some wine in it, but you can't, they're really life essays. And then I extrapolated perhaps for me, which was a key wine element and wrote a whole other companion wine essay to it. 
Those of us who uh, work in wine writing all want the secret of how to attract a, a non-wine audience. So this book actually straddles both wine and uh, a completely different way of writing. Um, did this did this change your opinion of wine writing as you were doing it? And and how do you sell a wine as a wine writer when you want to be known as a writer outside of wine? Trying to think. So I've had two wine guides and four. This is my fourth narrative nonfiction. And the first book, The Battle for Wine and Love or How I Saved the World from Parkerization, I wrote in 2008 and I wrote it as if it was going to be the only book that I would ever have written. And I tried to write it as novelistically as possible. And as it turns out, there were five more books. But this is the book where I was given the chance and I sold it. Knowing what my previous book sales had been, I realized, even though we disagree about this, that people don't want to read about wine outside of the wine community, which is a real problem if you want to make your living as a writer. Very difficult. So that's one reason I really wanted to stop writing about wine. But I've also, I think I've devoted my wine writing life when I wasn't doing like news stories on trying to stitch wine into culture and into daily life. Because I think one of the reasons people don't read about wine or don't want to is that it's something to drink. It has nothing to do with life. They forget that it is like art, like music, um, dance, that it is just what I've always thought for me. It's my politics and my poetry. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that was when I was told I had to have wine in this book. <laughs> it is was almost like a gift because it is the book that I've wanted to write for since I started writing about wine, where it masquerades as a wine book. When my art director read the book to design the cover, I have never had anybody in the art department ever read any of my books. They just go by the title and they do something. And she wrote me a note and she said, you will write to a wine shop with my book. And that's not the first time I heard this. I heard... It previously other people using my books to go and shop for wine, but this was a non-wine drinker and I felt proud of myself. So do you think you, you therefore discovered something about a, a different way to communicate about wine? Is this a technique that you would recommend other wine writers use? I would like other publications to allow writers to like write this way. Um, you know, as a wine writer, you're often forced to do the 10 best, blah, 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 you know, um, wine recommendations, wine descriptions, or given 400 words to write about something very important. And I think this is the ways uh, the wine industry is always complaining about needing to get more wine consumers, needing to introduce new generations to wine. And I have always believed this is the way to do it. So the answer is yes. Okay. And yet one of the things that you don't talk about in the book is you don't talk about how you became a wine writer or about your life as a wine writer. And yet it's a memoir. So what, that must have been a decision. And why did you leave that out? I think that is a boring story. I think how I became a wine writer is boring, I think. And that would have very much narrowed the interest in this book to the people in this room and the people in the wine world. But I tried to take 
15 stories from my life that, you know, overcoming a very difficult mother, um, Ethel, Ethel, you'll, you know, a, a devastating divorce that my parents had, had a profound effect on me. My completely miserable childhood. And the serial killer, the which, serial we will killer get which we'll to. get to. We will get to. I try to pick, well, these stories are not universal for everybody, but everybody experiences heartbreak. Everybody experiences, oh my God, I fell in love and this person doesn't share this passion. And you know, it's, whether it's wine, whether it's you dance and your partner doesn't and you're like crazy for dance, whether you're passionate about opera and you can't share that with the person you love. So I try to get emotional truths out of my life that also helped me understand how this shy, painfully introverted child, adult, grew up to be so bashed by the wine industry. Well, <laughs> let's let's talk about that. So one of the first things that you did that was provocative that, yeah. that caused a backlash was in 2000, you wrote an article for the New York Times, which revealed how many Napa winemakers were making wine for Robert Parker's palate using very high technology. Was that your first experience of backlash? And what happened? That was the very first experience that I had. So in um, 2000 and one, I became aware of the technology that was, that basically there was an industry. Hey, sign up for technologics and we will help you get a 95 plus score for Robert Parker and Spectator. And there are a few of those, Enologics, that was Enologics. And that's when I discovered wine technology. Before that, I rarely used for, actually, through that article, I rarely used first person. And that was just a reported article on all the technology that is available to create a certain kind of wine. I was just trying to figure out why I like certain wines and not others. Purely reported. I got death threats. It was very explosive. From who? I, name names. Actually, um, You're my he, friends. He was, if you look that article up, he actually was photographed for the story. So... You're all on your phones, aren't you? Looking up the article. California winemaker. Uh, so it was the first and I was really stunned. I was just, I'm just reporting, you know, it's, I'm just reporting. I was just doing my job. So I was shocked. Um, it's when I realized that, um, yeah, that's, I won't go any further that. Yeah. Well, well, Robert Park is interesting for a couple of reasons. So you wrote an entire book where you took on Robert Parker. And this, this seminal article was really about Robert Parker's influence. And yet in your memoir, you don't mention him. Why? I wrote a whole book about it. I don't know why. It's like one of those things that just was, why did I not write about Robert Parker in this book? I know I've been thinking about this, but I've addressed it in the introduction. I just felt I didn't need to revisit it. It, it was he was very upset with me after the book. There was just no reason. That's all. I mean, I'm very short. I'm curious what would I have written about it? I don't know what I would have written about. To me, it's not a story. Well, what's interesting about this, of course, is that when you, you know, kicked off with that article, Robert Parker dominated the world. But now 
It's your view that dominates. You actually won the wines that Robert Parker liked, the big, or that he was said to have liked, the big, you know, blockbuster, high alcohol. They're out the door. It's been your choice. The natural wine world has now turned the whole wine world on its head, so there's much less intervention. How does it feel to be a revolutionary when you've won the revolution? Well, I guess that's where I've written six wine books. Maybe I don't have to write another one. My work is done, but of course my work isn't done because... I'm a writer and I've got to continue writing. But, you know, how does it feel when I was, I was a whistleblower in 2001. I was treated like a whistleblower in the way it created my reputation, but in a way it ended my ability to make a reasonable living. And I threw myself in it instead. I mean, I wasn't going to be silenced. So at a certain point when more real wine started to surface in the market, and there's certainly a lot more that needs to be done there. It felt really great, and now, but it's now business as usual. So now there's a lot of industrial natural wines coming. And so I let somebody else take that on. So it feels like I did my work, now let somebody else take that battle on them. Don't want to fight anymore. So let's talk about a book that had a profound impact in your life, which is Albert Camus' The Plague. Do you want to tell the story of what happened when you went looking for a copy of that book? Yes. Okay. So this is chapter three, I believe. So when I was 14, do I want to tell that story? Yes, you do. Living in New York, a 14-year-old in New York. So with flaming red hair. With flaming red hair and braces. And my father needed to get a haircut. He was meeting the woman he hadn't yet left my mother for. His floozy. Uh, the floozy. And I didn't want to hang out. So I went to the bookstore across the street. Now, this was on St. Mark's place, which might be famous internationally, but it was St. Mark's place was just in 1969 was the height of counterculture. It was right around the corner from the Fillmore East. So it was where every like 14 year old wanted to be. There was a bookstore across the street and I had to replace my brother's The Plague, which I had lost. And I was taking it off the shelf and a very creepy tall guy asked me, oh, Camus? And basically wouldn't leave me alone. Uh, I will make a short story, a long story short. So basically through... Uh, he, he offered to photograph you. He wanted he to photograph you. He offered your, to photograph yeah. me. And now I'm really shy and I feel really ugly. And that's like not the way to get me to be photographed. But then he was like, oh, the red hair, the black slicker, the gray day. You know, he appealed to... Come back to my apartment. I said, no, I'm not coming back to your apartment. I'm no fool. I read Ann Lander's advice column. I know that there are people like you in the world. And he said, well, what about the roof? And I thought, okay, that sounds a lot safer. So he had very reasonable photography equipment. So I figured, oh, maybe I misjudged him and that was bad of me. And I'm such a bad person for thinking he was a creep that could kill me. Then there was a cloudburst, a thunderstorm, and he changed instantly and got really just a whole personality change and barked orders for me to help bring his equipment down to his apartment. And that's how I got into his apartment, which was immediately completely creepy and um, scary. And I said, okay, I got to go now. And um, shall I keep on going with the story or shall I just fast forward? Fast forward. Okay, we're going to fast forward. I'm obviously here, right? So I'm okay. And do you know what? Like, I was okay. I really thought that I was in control of the situation, but there is 
a point and not the, I, what, what does this story have to, okay, I'm going to go back. The point is, is that 40 years later, I find out he is Rodney or was. Well, well we should, we should get to the main point of the story, which is that you tried to get out of the apartment and okay. discovered that you were, so why? Dead bolted in. I just don't want to take stories like this, you know, um, and just since be, okay, I have a sensational story. I'm going to tell you about Rodney Alcala. I don't know. I escaped him. To me, I did through a series of events very close to death and destruction, which being 14, you just don't think is going to happen. But I did get out and I left my book. I ran back to get my book. I ran back, though, the piece of the story that I wanted to tell because I felt this is the way I took on the wine world in 2001. And later on with the book in 2008, I pounded on the door and I demanded my book. And I said, please, <laughs> my book, please. And um, at this point, for some, he had dressed, which tells you something about what hopefully you'll read about. And I snatched it and I thanked him for being sincere and I ran out the door. And uh, it's an act of colossal stupidity. Some people say it was brave, I think complete innocence, but in a way, I think it's an essential quality of how I became me and I became a wine writer is. Wine to Wine Business Forum. Everything you need to get ahead in the world of wine. Supersize your business network. Share business ideas with the biggest voices in the industry. Join us in Verona on November 13 to 14, 2023. Tickets available now at wine2wine.net. Now, you're, you're one of the only people who survived an encounter with him. He, he left a lot of dead people he behind him. People. When you found out it was him, you went to visit him in prison. He Were you to trying to discover something about yourself or something about why you survived? I went to visit him at Rikers, and then I went to visit him in San Quentin. I figured at the time, being a writer, and not to be flip about it, but if life gives a writer a serial killer story, maybe you can't walk away from it. Now, I'm not somebody who is obsessed by serial I don't like reading about them. I don't like stories about them. I just don't want to go there, but I felt like I had to. And I think just to get information, but in truth, I really wanted to find out who I was when I was 14. And I knew he wasn't going to remember me, and he didn't. But I, it was this weird feeling. There was, this man could have killed me. There's not often a person gets that chance to go back and look at that person and see who you were at 14. What allowed me to get into that situation in the first place? What was it? Did he let me go? On, you know, was I really not in danger? Did he let me go? Did I get out? But who was I? And in a way, it was, it was a silly thing because, of course, I wasn't going to get anything from him. Well, one of the things that struck me about who you are when you, you get to that passage is how detailed the sensory details are. You talk about all of the colours of the prison. You talk about the smell. You talk about the food that was in the vending machine. You talk about all of that. And, and this, I think it's the sensory detail that makes you such a good wine writer. Thank you. But there was something very strange that happened in, when I was in San Quentin. And I, was, I was given a whole day 
Um, San Quentin, for those who don't know, is pretty much the most notorious prison in the United States. And this was death row that I was visiting. So you have to go through all sorts of shenanigans. I had to ask Rodney for permission to go visit him. I had to write to him. I was getting letters, love Rodney. Ugh. It was really, um, but I wanted to go. But in the middle of it, he asked me what I did. And I said, I write about wine. He said, oh, I love wine. Man hadn't been a free man since 1980. And at that point, I knew I had to get out of there. It was something very awful about having this chat with somebody who had killed so many people. So you've written about visiting a concentration camp. You've visited about prison. You've written about the first sort of disastrous feature that you did. Where do you go from here now that you've written a hybrid book about wine and life? What's your next project? I love to ask people here what they, they might like next project. I'm working on some fiction, probably the 12th draft of the novel, that maybe this time I have it. Another novel about uh, social media and revenge in the wine world. That should be juicy if I'm able to pull that off. And uh, is this, is this going to be like an um, auto-fiction where it's cleverly disguised about real people? Yes, yeah, actually, so. you should all be afraid. <laughs> so I think that's what's next. Uh, I would not be against doing another book like this because there's so many wine stories that I haven't told. But maybe that's, you know, I'm not much into sequels. So uh, maybe it's well enough to let this book stand on its own and move on to different territory. So I'm very aware that the interview I've just done is, is brutally short covering topics that actually need weight and depth, but I'm also very conscious that Stevie's very conscious of time and we only have a few minutes left. Does anybody have any questions they want to ask Alice? Absolutely stunned. Stunned silence. Um, you're a person who wrote so many books, but what do you think is uh, really the key to make people interested in wine? What do you think is the, the key what, what, where, where people get interested in this? Well, as a writer, I think because at this point, this book has not really been taken up by the wine community, though it's gotten great reviews in the wine community. And it sold out its first edition. It's now on its second printing. Yeah, I forgot to yeah. say. Yeah, I said that. it. Um, I thought this book was a disaster. It came out August 6th. I was looking at Amazon ratings at the end of September. And I thought, oh my God, I wrote probably what's the best book of my life and nobody's reading it. The next day I got a call from my editor that it was going into second printing that it had sold out. But I knew that the wine community wasn't reading it. And then I started seeing it popping up in book clubs and you know, all these things that not in my circle. So I think writing about wine in as life is one way to get new drinkers. I also think there's a tremendous problem in wine that I spend a lot of time drinking. How I feel, even though I am a big snob, there's no doubt I'm a snob. I have, you know, I'm, I'm painful to drink wine with sometimes. But there is, but it's, I'm not about luxury and I'm really very much about this egalitarian wine is for the people. I get very upset about wine prices. I believe that wine is everybody's right. It's a, and a natural or natural enough wine is everybody's right. And I think if there's a way we can shed it 
from this preciousness. Um, and even to the point of, um, just the, the preciousness of the details on the wine service and somehow just make it for the people. People will drink it. But it's a hard one because people, it's about status. It's about cult. And that's so much a part of what wine marketers want to do for their client. So there's a really great split within the wine world. And I don't know how to bridge that. I try to do my part. But it's a big cultural divide. So natural wines became the world's hottest wine trend, as you stated here. Being one of the main evangelists, where do you think natural wine will go from now? Well, natural has arrived, so it's no longer, um, you know, people are not necessarily, you know, doing long rants about horrible natural wine is. It's more or less, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So it's the same thing with all group dynamics. There was this glory period of natural wine that probably went from the mid-90s until probably 2014, 15. And now what goes around comes around, and now natural wine people are starting to market, and it's going to be the same old wine business. And I think that it has had its effect, and I'm going to be happy with that. So in important wine regions around the world, people are rethinking, do I really need to use that many additives in my wine? Maybe, maybe I'll use, maybe I'll bring down my sulfite addition to maybe 80 parts per million instead of 220. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just less. But even um, in Burgundy, there are more, there's a return to native yeast fermentation where as much as they said back in 2005, there wasn't much. And yes, there were concentrators in Burgundy. And, you know, you really don't see too many of those these days. So all around the world, people have taken their accelerator off of the additive stuff. I think that's really good. People are using different vessels. I think there is... Um, great. There's more variety. There's more variety in the kinds of wines that we have now. I think in another probably 30 years, there'll be another natural wine movement. Maybe I'll be dead by then. But where it is now, it's moving into the mainstream and see what happens from from here. Yes, there's more industrial natural. At a certain price point, maybe that's not so bad because, as I said, people who want a six-year wine should be able to get something relatively natural. And if that's the way to do it, that's the way to do it. So it's, um, but marketers are going to go in, are into natural wine. And so it's, it's going to be the same thing all over again. That's what we do. But at least I think it's more back to basics and I'm happy with that. Um, you've inspired a lot of wine writers and writers across different genres. Who are some of the people that you are reading now or enjoying either inside wine or outside wine? About her mother. I'm doing a lot of mother memoirs lately because maybe I've got to do another one about mine. Um, I, it's, there are two wine books that I absolutely love in the vine country that was done, written in the late 1800s about two Irish ladies, Irish ladies, probably lesbians, um, who, uh, who traveled through Bordeaux and it was just charming. And for me, that's like when wine writing was great. Um, and uh, Bouquet, which was written by, I forgot what 
her name was. It was written in the 1930s. Trying to go back, there's a lot of boring, I hate to say this, but there's so much boring wine writing of like, why am I reading about your, it's, it's like, I hate writing wine descriptions. I like, one reason I started my newsletter is that people want wine recommendations, hate doing it. So I was going to, if you're going to make me do wine recommendations, going to charge you for it. But um, I used to think the 1950s and 60s was a great era for wine writing. Not so much. Really pretty boring. I wish I could read Soldati in a, um, I, and Veronelli. I wish that they were translated into English and to see what masters of Italian wine writing were. But um, what am I reading now? Chemistry Lessons. Did anybody read Chemistry? You don't want my book reviews. But anyway, I'm not reading a whole lot of wine. I'm very happy not to read about wine right now. But when I do, I often recommend Felicity Carter's wine writing. Because she's brilliant. Okay. I think nothing that has been said today can possibly top that very true statement from Alice. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to close the session off. Um, but thank you all for being a fantastic audience and thank you and congratulations on a great book that has for a wine book completely sold out its run and is now in its second print. You have no idea what a big, a big deal this is in publishing. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.